why are you so afraid? One of my biggest fears is tripping on that step when I walk up here. And I did that in practice. I tried like, yeah. Um, why are you so afraid, Jesus asks you, do you still have no faith? Let's pray together. God, help us today to, man, just see what you want us to see from your word here and to connect these dots of fear and faith in our lives and, and, and to kind of ask and wrestle with that for ourselves. Do we default towards fear in our circumstances and in the things of this world in our lives, or do we default towards faith to see you for who you are and trust you in what's going on? So, um, Lord, just lead us and teach us, correct us where we need it, convict us, encourage us, and, and bring peace to the storms that we need you to show up in. We love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. You ever just get, like, super tired? Yeah, everybody's like, yeah, of course. We have no excuses today, right? We got an extra hour of sleep. But um, Mark, as he writes this story, and by the way, in, in the Gospel of Mark, I just always think this is interesting that um, Mark, we're, we're not 100% sure uh, where Mark got his stories. Mark was not one of the guys that walked around with Jesus in his day, but probably the Gospel of Mark was written from the perspective of anybody? Anybody? Peter. Peter. Um, Peter was probably the one that gave Mark the stories, at least for the most part, and kind of shared with him his perspective on all these things. Um, so Peter was there, and then obviously we have the Gospel of John, and we have Luke, and we have Matthew, a few different perspectives. Um, this story is in Mark 4, 35 through 41. It's also in Matthew, and it's in Luke, okay? So, if, um, you know, you want to see kind of the different versions of these stories, but their stories are almost exactly identical, even in the wording. There's a couple differences here and there um, that I'll share with you as we go. But to begin this story out, Here's what Mark says when he says, that, eve uh, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. So uh, just a quick pause. If you were to read the, the, the stories kind of leading up to this story, and, and in this series, we're looking at questions Jesus asked. And at the end of the story, Jesus asked his disciples that question, why are you so afraid? You have little faith. And there's this whole amazing scene that we get of Jesus stopping this storm. But before all of that, Jesus has been teaching He's been doing a lot of ministry, and he's been even healing people, all these things. If you kind of read Mark 1, 2, 3, and 4, to get to this point, man, Jesus is literally, physically exhausted. Um, and I think the reason Mark says in verse 36, he says, leaving the crowd behind, so that's one thing. Anybody get exhausted by people? Raise your hand. Okay, yes, sometimes, look, I get it, and I'm a pastor, and I kind of have to people, and I love it, and I'm glad I get to do this, but there are days that I'm just like, man, I just need to go home, and I need to take a nap. Um, hopefully that will happen today. We'll see. But um, some days, we're just exhausted, right? You're just tired, and Jesus, really, I think Mark is kind of commenting on his humanity here and his physical uh, just exhaustion. He says, leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was. Just as he was. And I think that's exactly what Mark means. Jesus was tired. He's, ex he's so tired. And so he gets in this boat. And Jesus was actually in the boat while he was teaching. If you know that scene, he kind of rose out a little ways. And he's in the boat, standing in the boat, teaching the crowds. And then it's like Jesus is just kind of, guys, can we please, can we just go over there away from the crowds for a little while? And so Jesus lays down, it seems, in the stern of the boat, lays his head on a cushion of some kind, and he falls 
asleep. So verse 37 and 38. A furious squall came up. A fierce storm. A furious squall. I don't know if anybody uses the word squall anymore. But furious squall came up. And the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? So this furious squall, this fierce storm, this was not uncommon, okay? This was something that, if you, anybody ever been over to Israel? Anybody been in that part of the world in here? A couple of y'all, that's awome. Uh, Tasha Schoolcraft's over there right now. Some of y'all know Tasha. I'm so jealous. I want to be there. I want to go there sometime, but uh, she's over there right now, and so just pray for her if you think about her. But um, if you go to that region, what you'll notice is this particular place where Jesus is, the Sea of Galilee, okay? Um, and at the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee itself is 600 feet below sea level. It's a very low, low area, okay? Um, Dead Sea is not far from there and all that, and the Jordan River connects them, so it's a very low area, and surrounding this lake are jagged peaks, jagged cliffs. And so, if you know anything about geography and how weather works, what would you expect to happen in an area that's very low, surrounded by peaks? Lots of wind, lots of storms, lots all the time, right? So this was not an uncommon thing. This sea, to this day, is known for massive, terrible, terrifying storms. So they're on the sea, and some of them are fishermen, right? Like some of these guys do this for a living. They're out there all the time on this lake. They understand that these things happen. And so for them to be in a moment of such panic and such fear tells us what? Now this was probably a storm unlike any storm they'd ever seen, or at least to the degree that it's just like so terrifying to them that the way it says waves are coming over, it feels like the boat is going to be swamped and all these things. And it says, Mark comments that they asked this question. So there are three questions in this, in this passage, okay? There's three questions. Here's the first one. Two of them are asked by the disciples. One is asked by Jesus. The first one uh, that, that's asked by the disciples is, Jesus don't you care, right? That's what they said. Um, as, as they're feeling like they're about to die, teacher, don't you care if we drown? Now, before you have this moment of, and we do this sometimes, I do this sometimes as I read the Bible, especially with the disciples, right? We look at them and we see the stories and the way that they respond to certain things. We're like, man, you stupid disciples. Like, it's Jesus in the boat with you, right? Jesus in the boat, we all know the story. And if you grew up in church, you kind of know how this story ends. And you're like, y'all are so dumb, y'all are so... But is it not, ladies and gentlemen, is it not one of the most basic responses of our human nature when it comes to fear? to ask that question. God, do you care? Do you care what is going on in my life? What is happening in my circumstances right now? Do you care? Do you see me? Do you hear me? Right? And of course, this is like a physical reaction to wind and waves, and they're literally terrified. But fear comes in all sorts of shapes and sizes, does it not? Fear happens all the time. For all of it, it is a basic human response to circumstances that are scary, that we're just afraid. And when that comes and when that happens, it is one of the most simple and easy kind of paths for us to get to in our response as we just get to this place where we look at our circumstances, we look at what's going on, we ask how we feel, and we think about that, and we just kind of focus in on our particular circumstance, our particular thing, and we get honestly a little bit selfish, a little bit self-centered sometimes in fear, because fear can do that, and we just ask, God, don't you care? 
don't you even care what's going on here? And that's the question that they ask. But here's the thing. Remember, Jesus is completely exhausted. He has been doing ministry. He has been healing people. Uh, we saw from last week, right, when the woman comes and touches the, the fringe of his garment, right? Jesus felt power leave him. Do y'all remember that part of that story? Like when the lady touches his garment and it's like Jesus stops and he asks who touched me, but he feels power go out from him. So in some way, it actually seems that it is a physical exhaustion on Jesus to be healing people. Right? Because he is in his humanity. He is in his physical body at this time and in his like pre-resurrected self. Okay, So he feels tiredness. He feels exhaustion. He feels pain. Like He feels all sorts of things. And it seems that in this moment he is so tired. Have you ever been so tired that you could sleep in the rain? You know, like, I don't even know. When I read that, I'm like, that's kind of weird to me that he's sleeping. Like, waves are hitting him and water, and he's just like laying there chilling. I don't understand that, but he is so exhausted. And I, and I think part of the point of this story is just simply this, and maybe this is all you need to hear today, I don't know. He does care. He does care. There's all sorts of stories in the gospel where we see Jesus clearly care. Actually, if you were to read on to Mark chapter 6, um, even, even more profound, I think, in Mark chapter 6, here's what's going on in Mark 6. Jesus is doing ministry. Not only has he been healing people, not only has he been teaching, which I'm just going to be honest, sometimes it's exhausting to like spend the mental energy to teach crowds. It can wear you out. I'm telling y'all, by the end of second service, I'm done. Okay, and Jesus has been doing this all day. He's been doing this for days on end. He's been teaching. Like, he is exhausted for that reason. Not only that, but in Mark 6, he's ridiculed and he's mocked for being a carpenter's son, right? And, and like his dad isn't even in the picture anymore. So he's, he's being made fun of for that reason. That will wear you out. Not only that, but in Mark chapter 6, he learns that his cousin, John the Baptist, has been recently murdered, got his head cut off by Herod, right? So that's weighing on him. And not only that, but it actually says that he and his disciples haven't eaten anything. Anybody get hangry? Don't point at your wife right now. This is not the time. But sometimes... We have this exhaustion, right? So Jesus is tired physically. He's discouraged because people have been making fun of him. He's mourning his cousin, and he's hungry. And here's what happens in Mark chapter 6. Same thing. He goes across the lake again. It seems like this lake is kind of his buffer between him and the crowds. He's like, I'm going to go to this side if there's no crowds, or I'm going to go to that side. So he goes across the lake again, but it says in Mark 6.34, when he gets over to the other side, he lands, and here's what it says. When he landed there, the he saw the crowds, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus cares. You ever been so physically exhausted you were just done peopling? That was Jesus. And yet, it says he just has compassion. This is the perfect human being. A human being that can be so tired, so done with the day, and yet have the mental and physical energy to spend it on serving and having compassion on people still. And if he would do that in his pre-resurrected humanity, will he not do that now? When he feels no tiredness, when he feels no mourning anymore, when he has no sickness or no, no stress on his body, when he doesn't hunger anymore, would he not now in his resurrected self-care and come and have compassion on you and on me in our fears and in our trials? If he would do it then, 
Will he not do it now? The answer is yes, he cares. Jesus, Master, do you not care? Do you not care? And so, as we just kind of keep reading on, verse 39, it says this. It says, he got up and he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. I like that word, uh, rebuke. That he rebuked, it says, the wind and the waves. The word is uh, epitemao in the Greek. Epitemao literally means to place proper value upon something. In other words, is to take something and put it where it goes. You know what Jesus is doing to the wind and the waves? Putting them in their place. That's what the word means. Jesus does this actually several times throughout the Gospels. He rebukes uh, demons all the time. Like, he does this to demons constantly. He's constantly, like, walking over, like, where there's somebody possessed or somebody struggling with that or whatever way. They're oppressed by some demonic force, and Jesus rebukes the demons. There's this one story where these demons are in this little boy, and Jesus walks up to them. He rebukes them. They come out of the little boy, and the demon starts to shout. The demon says, you are the son of God. And Jesus goes, shut it. And the demon's just like, okay, my bad, you know. Like, demons get this right, by the way. The fear of Christ. Jesus rebukes demons. He rebukes Peter one time. You know that story? Jesus, you're not going to Jerusalem. You're not going to die. Peter, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> what? He, he rebukes his disciples a few different times. He rebukes sickness. He rebukes physical illness in people. And it stops. And here... He rebukes nature itself, the wind and the waves and the storm. Get in your place. And the proper place of all people, of all authority, of all demons, and of nature itself is where? Under the headship of Christ. That's the proper place. And so when Jesus stands up and he, he wants the disciples to know, yes, I care, and he stands up and he rebukes the wind and the waves, he's just simply saying, get where you belong, under me. I am the authority, right? Not you, not the wind, not the waves, not nature. And, and we got to understand, too, with the Jewish mindset on these things, Jews were terrified of the sea in general. Like I said, they lived in a place where it was just known for these storms. And in, in, in all sorts of Hebrew writing, as you read through the Old Testament, the sea is always pictured as this kind of chaotic monstrosity of a thing, like something that can't be controlled, something that can't be stopped, something that will consume you and kill you at a whim. And some of the nations around them, of course, attributed godness to the sea itself, like the sea is a god, and the sea has deity to it, and Jesus in this moment is exerting his authority over such things and showing the truth there is one God and he rebukes the wind and the waves verse 40 second question so he said to his disciples why are you so afraid do you still have no faith why are you so afraid do you still have no faith. Matthew phrases it a little bit differently. One question, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? His question certainly connects two different things, right? Faith and fear. 
Whether he kind of asked it two different, like, why are you so afraid? Why do you have no faith? Or just, you have little faith, why are you so afraid? In whatever way he asked it, however he actually worded it, he's clearly connecting this idea for the disciples. There is a connection between faith and fear. Faith and fear have a relationship in our hearts. Do you know this? Faith and fear have a relationship within the heart of every single person, and they exist in inverse proportion to one another. You know what that means? They exist in inverse proportion. That means as one grows, the other does what? It shrinks. And as that one grows, the other one shrinks. As one gets stronger, one gets weaker. This is how faith and fear work in us all the time. And so when Jesus asked that question, this is exactly what he's getting at for them. Why are you afraid? Where is your faith? Why is your fear growing and your faith shrinking? When your faith should grow and your fear, if it would, if your faith would grow, your fear would shrink. Faith cannot live in a heart that's consumed by fear. A heart that is dismayed at life's circumstances and trials and unknowns of the future. Faith cannot thrive where fear is allowed to take root and control our thoughts and our attitudes and our actions. And likewise, fear cannot thrive in a heart where faith takes root, where faith is growing. So, it matters which one we let live and grow in our hearts, doesn't it? It matters if you let fear or if you let faith live in your heart and grow and thrive. That matters because the other will shrink. The other will get weaker. And so how? How do we do this? How do we know which one's growing and which one's shrinking? Here's, here's the answer. It's verse 41. They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? The third question. Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Here's, here's the answer. How do we, how do we like allow faith to grow instead of fear in our lives? The answer is found when we see that faith and fear are both fed by focus. Faith and fear are both fed by focus. Whatever you are focused on. And we talked about focus last week, didn't we? We talked about focus with that woman who was living in that life 12 years of bleeding and just saw she was desperate and she needed to get to Jesus. She was focused on him, right? And so what grew in her? Was it fear or was it faith? Faith, because she was focused on him. Faith and fear both grow by what we focus our attention on, right? And we know this to be true because all the time something has our attention. All the time we are focused on something in this world, guys. We focus on the news. We focus on COVID. We focus on our bank accounts. We focus on what people think about us. We focus on the opinions of other people. We focus on our plans and our futures and whether or not things are panning out according to what we want. And all of those things feed what? Fear. They feed the fear. That, now listen, it's not to say that none of those things are important. It's not to say that we can't ever like, pay attention in some way to those things, but they cannot occupy our full attention. They cannot occupy our focus over and against the focus that we have on Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. The point of this story is not that storms won't come. The point of this story is not that life isn't hard. The storms will come. Life is hard. There are valleys everywhere. Guys, the Bible is so honest about reality in our life, about the reality that suffering is part of the human existence. And you know that if you've been alive longer than three minutes. 
Suffering comes, pain comes, trials come, and fear will creep in as much as we give focus to those things. Instead of giving focus to Jesus, instead of giving focus to God. Why does, why does the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews 12, why does he say, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Fix your eyes, focus, the author and perfecter of our what? Faith. Because focus feeds faith. In the very next verse, he says, consider him who endured such suffering. Consider him. You know what that word consider means? Study. Study him. Focus on him. Every day of your life, fear will grow in your heart the less you know Jesus. The less you look at him. The less you sing to him. The less you worship him. The less you fear him. The less you honor him. The less you serve him. The less you read of him. The less you study him. Fear will grow in your heart. Are you living a life of fear right now? I guarantee you it's because you're not focused on Jesus. Not the way that you should. And I'm not saying you're not struggling. I'm not saying you're not a Christian. I'm just saying there are times in our lives where we all struggle with that. Amen? We just do. I do too. And sometimes it just takes days like this where God wants to bring our focus back to himself. Which actually, I don't know, I think brings up an interesting question. How God will get our focus back on him when, we're, when we've taken it off of him? Here's, here's the question. I was just thinking about this this week. We, uh, we know who stopped the storm. Who started it? I'm not going to answer it for you, but think about that. I think that's interesting. If you really know, and you really know God, and you understand his sovereignty, will God not bring you through a storm to get your eyes on his son? Who started that storm? So if you want to know, are you more focused on your circumstances or are you more focused on Jesus? Are you more focused on the things around you or what's going on in your life that are causing the fear or are you more focused on Christ? The simple answer is ask yourself, which do I fear more? Those things or Jesus? Because the disciples, did you see that part? Like at the end of the story there? Because it says in verse 41, they were terrified, not of the storm anymore, of who? Jesus. Y'all, they're freaking out because of the storm. Don't you care, Jesus, we're going to drown, Jesus, we're going to die, Jesus. And then he stops. No! And the storm stops. And now the real fear comes. We're in a boat with the one who could stop a storm with a word. And when you realize that's who Jesus is, that he's not, y'all, he's not some kind of puppy to be trifled with. He's just not. He's not our pet to be kept on a leash or in a cage in a box. That he is Lord of creation. Y'all, I think, honestly, okay, Proverbs 9, verse 10, says this, Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, 
and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. I think a lot of Christians in this world today were just playing games with Jesus, like he's our pet, like he's our genie, maybe. We need something, we rub the lamp, he comes out, we ask him a question, he goes back in the bottle, stay there. Or we maybe start our day off like that and we play that little quick little quiet time game and then we go about our day and our strength and our power, not giving him a second thought. But when you see him for who he is, when you understand his majesty and his glory, when you see that he stops storms with a word and your attention is turned to him, finally, fully, you will focus on him and you will see that he is to be feared. Not because he's bad, because he's God. And he's amazing, and he's perfect, and I'm bad, and I'm sinful. You know the story where Peter catches all the fish when he first meets Jesus? Like for the very first time, he meets Jesus, he catches all these fish. Jesus like tells him, you know, throw your net over there, you've been trying over here. Jesus is not a fisherman, Peter's a fisherman, and Jesus says, no, throw him over there. Peter throws him over there, he catches all these fish, he says his nets are breaking, his boat's about to tip over because of so many fish. You know what Peter does in response to that? He falls down at Jesus' feet, and he just goes, I'm sinful, get away from me. That's his response to Jesus' goodness and grace. And that is the right response. Always. Not because he's bad, because he's good and he's powerful and he's God. And we're not here to play games with him. We're here to reverence him. We're here to worship him. We're here to bow down before him. And I pray that we are the kind of church that never sees Jesus with frivolity, that never sees Jesus with flippancy, that we see Jesus with fear and trembling and awe and wonder and worship and love. And hope, because that's the kind of Jesus I want to follow. That's the kind of Jesus I do follow, and I pray that you know him like this. That the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. You know what the most common command in the Bible is? Do not be afraid. And you know, almost every time, 90% of those verses in the Bible, hundreds of them, 90% of them connect directly, that command, do not be afraid, with the presence of God. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. The presence of God brings the peace of God in our fears. And so we are commanded throughout Scripture not to be afraid of anything but God. To fear one thing and one thing only, and that is Him, our God, our Maker. With the presence of God comes the peace of God. And so they ask that third question Who is this? Who is this? And I love that they ask that question because it's so amazing to me that the, uh, the king, King David, answered that very question a thousand years before they asked it. He answered that question. Psalm 65, if you want to turn there and just hang out there with me for a second as we wrap this up. Who is this man? Who is this one? Who is the one who stops the storms? Who is the one that stills the waves? Who is the one that calms our fears in moments like this? Here's what King David wrote, Psalm 65, verse 5. You answer us with awesome deeds of righteousness. O God, our Savior, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, who formed the mountains by your power, 
having armed yourself with strength, who stilled the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, and the turmoil of the nations. And then he ends it with this verse. Those living far away fear your wonders where morning dawns and evening fades you call forth songs of joy who does awesome deeds who is the hope of the earth who formed the mountains who stills the raging seas david's answer oh god our savior who is this Who is this man in the boat with us? Who is the one who could sleep in a storm? Calm, but not careless. Calm, but not careless in the storm. Who is the one who could go through that and then stand up and with a word, stop the storm in its place? Who is this man? Oh God, our Savior. That's the answer. 